Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Show podcast. Hi, everybody. On uh, today's podcast, you're going to hear Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe on Canada and Canadian provinces voting blue. John Simpson of Ipsos Canada talks about the national poll, which shows that the Conservative Party of Canada is still leading the Liberals, but Justin Trudeau's Red Party is tightening the race. Mike Smith from Vancouver, from the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio on uh, Premier Horgan standing on his own and what's happening with gasoline prices on the West Coast. Fran Coombs will join us from Rasmussen polling in the United States with Joe Biden now in the race for the White House and Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Sri Lanka terror. That's some of what you'll hear on the podcast. With me now is the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe. Mr. Premier, thank you so much. Always great talking to you. Uh, great to talk to you as well, Roy. Let me ask you first to please give us your assessment of what's going on uh, across this country as province after province after province, or provincial voters after provincial voters after provincial voters make a right turn and decide conservative. Well, there's a couple of things, I think. Uh, every province is, uh, you know, a little different with the, you know, how their industries, how their wealth is really driven. Uh, I've always said that. And uh, and what's important, uh, you know, in our in our very uh, uh, diverse nation, which I always say is, is the strength of, of our nation, and, and we need to respect uh, that diversity. Um, but what we're seeing is a really an identification of, of an indifference of, of our federal government in part, um, in part uh, uh, to our our are that that very diversity of how we create wealth in in Saskatchewan for instance I always say is so much so much different than in Ontario which is really a manufacturing uh, superpower and so you're seeing uh, you know the federal government uh, time and time again uh, coming out with uh, really what are ideological um, initiatives um, in many cases aren't really effective um, such as such as what I call the litmus test of what's happening here is, is the carbon tax um, but you're, you're seeing this in starting to be identified across the nation and that's part I think of of what you see happening uh, in provincial elections as I said the the litmus test that I that I uh, say is uh, is out there is each and every time in a provincial election that a that a government is uh, aligning itself with the carbon tax and 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 uh, aligning itself with implementing uh, that tax an ineffective tax by the way on uh, the citizens that they hope to represent they lose uh, time and time again, that's been shown, and I suspect it will uh, uh, continue to be shown for some time now. Saskatchewan led, was the first province to challenge Mr. Trudeau in court and challenge his carbon tax in court. Remind us, please, what it is that is illogical about the Trudeau-imposed carbon tax on the province of Saskatchewan, where you've already got great carbon sequestration going on. 
Absolutely. Um, well, it doesn't work, uh, for, first of all. Um, it certainly uh, it does nothing uh, for reducing emissions, uh, uh, you know, here in this province. It, it essentially uh, taxes the hardworking families in Saskatchewan, and that's been proven uh, with the report that was put out by the Parliamentary Budget Officer uh, this week. Listen, um, here, here's the ineffectiveness of this tax. The Parliamentary Budget Officer identified three places where there would be uh, carbon reductions, uh, and he attributed it to a carbon tax um, here, but I, w- I would put forward uh, nothing nothing could be further from the truth the first was uh, a reduction in electrical generation we're doing that already Sask power has a 40 percent reduction target by 2030 that's 10 percent in excess of the federal government's target so that's happening already uh, prior to any uh, any ineffective carbon tax federal carbon tax being implemented on on that industry the second was uh, uh, more fuel efficient or electric vehicles that's happening already uh, across the nation uh, if you look at not only the switch to electric but the switch to higher fuel higher uh, lower emissions vehicles across uh, canada even in our transport trucks um, if you look at how clean uh, they are burning today relative to 20 years ago it, it's it's much much better uh, those things are happening already the third thing actually is an effect of the carbon tax and that was a 15 percent reduction in in, uh, in, in the energy industry. Uh, reduction in supply, not reduction in demand. The demand will still be there, but we will be choosing because of this tax to reduce our supply in Western Canada. And in doing so, are going to reduce the jobs available in Western Canada. And I would say that the demand will still be met by, by a much dirtier energy source from other areas of the world. So the Parliamentary Budget Officer's report that was released uh, just this week shows, uh, shows this this tax for for what it is it's a wealth redistribution uh, program it has nothing uh, nothing to do uh, with respect to the environment no but as you as you've stated and as we hear and we just heard uh, a clip from the prime minister at the top of the hour oppose the carbon tax and you're a climate change denier and that's that argument will be pressed forward and pushed forward even though it, uh, it it's just not the case now premier mo what changes um with Western Canada, with, with the Western Can- Canadian reality, uh, with Mr. Kenny, with Jason Kenny becoming the Premier of Alberta, what, 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 what? How does that change the national dynamic as well? Well, it, it, it changes a number of things. Let, let me just start. <laughs> There's a number of people across this nation, me, me included, at times that have have always hoped that the Maple Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup as well, and and I hope they do with uh, with Mike Babcock, a Saskatchewan uh, native, uh, coaching them now. But it still hasn't happened. The same holds true for a uh, carbon tax. Uh, as much as you hope it might work, it hasn't worked anywhere, and it's not. Uh, it's. I don't know why we'd expect it uh, to work here in Canada. Um, Jason Kenney, uh, as, as Premier-elect of Alberta, um, we now have a Premier-elect King in, in Prince Edward Island, as well as been elected uh, to a minority government uh, um, in in that jurisdiction. We have uh, Blaine Higgs. We have uh, Doug Ford, uh, Premier Pallister, and I, I think this is an indication of. Of where the nation of Canada is, um, they've they've we've had the discussion with respect to uh, growing the economy from the heart out, if you will. And I think the Canadians are starting to realize that actually uh, the economy grows by the blood, sweat, and toil and investment of, of people, Canadians, and and others uh, in in our wealth generating industries. Uh, yes, um, we do that so that we can have jobs for us and the next generation. 
But in fairness, and this needs to be recognized, we also do it to ensure that our communities and our environment are are, are better uh, in for that next generation. That's why we have the, the rigorous processes that we've had for so many years, uh, provincially and federally, around environmental assessments, around uh, ensuring that the industries that are operating in, in or near our communities are doing right, not not only by by the economic growth that they create, but doing right by by that next generation and not having a, a negative impact on our communities and and that's what Canadians I think are starting uh, to to uh, identify with the carbon tax I say is quite often the litmus test um, but it's a broader narrative at play and you know I, I have all the respect for the Canadian people. Well, exactly, and uh, it, it's foolhardy to be in denial about the fact that we have a very ethical approach to energy development in this country, and we are we're on the forefront of of, uh, of, of technology, of technologically uh, making sure that it's done done responsibly. It's uh, well, one other question for you, one last question for you, Premier Mo, and we've talked about this on the air, and uh, when you were on with uh, Premier Higgs of New Brunswick, there's also the issue of uh, a divisive mindset or mood that's that's surfaced in Canada. And that is something we need to get beyond. It's dangerous. It absolutely is. And uh, there's there's divisive comments uh, that are being made. Um, and, and listen, they're not... Uh, um, uh, there's not just one, uh, you know, group or p- individual uh, that is associated with one particular group that is uh, making or retaliating uh, with respect to comments and actions, not only in Canada but a, but a global conversation. And I, I just go back to our, each of us uh, have a personal responsibility. You know, a personal responsibility to treat one another as as we expect to be treated ourselves. Um, you know, and if we just ensure to treat uh, tr- treat our neighbor, treat our, our family members, treat uh, those that we interact with either uh, uh, knowingly or unknowingly uh, with on social media in precisely the way, the same way that we expect to be treated back, I think, uh, you know, things would, would, would go a lot better. It's, it's when we are really trying to uh, move our and I say this as, as a society across around the world, move our uh, our beliefs onto uh, or into uh, an into another home or into another a family or, or push our beliefs on on someone else. That isn't the Canadian way. Um, that isn't. We have always led by example. We have never led by by pushing uh, you know our beliefs uh, into another culture, into uh, you know another area of the world, or into uh, into onto another individual. And, and I, we uh, should just you know rely on on the principles that. We want to be treated uh, in the same way that that we expect, that we want to treat people in the same way that we expect to be treated, and just remember who we are as Canadians. Uh, we lead by example uh, each and every time. Well, as always, well said, Premier Mo. Thank you so much for the time. It's always good talking to you. Have a great weekend, Roy. Bye bye, Premier Scott Mo of Saskatchewan. John Simpson is the vice president of Ipsos Canada, and Ipsos did a major poll on Canadians' views heading toward October the 21st, the views now, and some weeks since SNC-Lavalin, the PMO, Trudeau, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Gerald Butts, Michael Wernick, we're all making headlines. What's the impact, uh, or at least what has the result been of this story not being dominating the headlines on a daily basis? Sean Simpson joins us from Ipsos on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Sean, good to talk to you. And what are, to be here. What, what are the numbers nationally and in the most seat-rich provinces now? Yeah, well, well nationally we're finding that the, uh, the gap uh, that the 
conservatives had over the liberals, which at one point was 10 points, uh, that's now starting to shrink, and it's only four points. So we have the conservatives at 36% of the national vote, uh, 32% for the liberals, so they're back only by four points now. The NDP is at uh, 19%, that's down a little bit. Uh, the blocks at five, which translates into 20% in Quebec. And then we've got all the other parties, which includes the Green Party, at 8%. And that's actually the highest that we've seen them uh, this election cycle. So I think that uh, the fact that the Greens did quite well in PEI, they didn't form government, but they're the opposition, uh, that, that spills over a little bit. And other people consider voting Green uh, in other parts of the country as a result. So if we look at the national picture, why now are the Liberals up two points and the Conservatives down four in the three or four weeks since the SNC case and the scandal was dominating headlines? What changed? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the, the page has turned uh, a little bit. Uh, for the better part of two months, uh, we were hearing about this story every single day. And people were paying attention. In fact, our, our polling showed that the vast majority of Canadians were, in fact, paying attention to, to the story and were siding uh, disproportionately with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould over the prime minister. Now, the government has effectively shut down uh, almost every avenue uh, for this story to continue to exist. You know, the, the committee hearings are done. They've expelled it from caucus. Uh, so there, there, there are fewer forums for um, uh, Joey Wilson-Rabel and Dr. Phil Potts to, to be able to tell their story. As a result, there is reduced news coverage, and I think that, that people are, are starting to not forget, but it, it's not top of mind. The other uh, thing that might be happening here is um, – is that Andrew Scheer, the, the leader of, of the Conservatives, um, probably for the first time since he's become leader, ha- had an opportunity to, to showcase himself uh, in opposition to what was happening. Uh, people may have had an opportunity to, to, to learn more about Andrew Scheer, to see him in action, and you know, maybe thinking twice about, um, about supporting him. They may not love the Prime Minister, but maybe they're not thrilled with the, with the other options they have available to them either. Now, if you look at what's happened across the country, Sean, provincially, and I mentioned that at the top of the show, you have this blue firewall going up. Yeah. How does that potentially impact on October the 21st? If you have a majority of Canadians, and just numerically across the country, if you add up all the populations in the provinces that have gone blue, if you have a majority of, of, of those provinces, of the people in, that, in those provinces looking at those who are voting, going blue, what's the spillover on October the 21st, or is it just too early to tell? Yeah, you know, it's hard to say. I, I think uh, historically, um, a lot of provinces uh, who prefer to to have an opposite power, uh, sorry, party in power provincially uh, from nationally. If I if I just think back to Ontario, for example, you know, during Pearson, during uh, Trudeau seniors' years, it was it was conservative, and then and then we go back and in, in Stephen Harper's years, it was it was liberal provincially, and at least in Ontario, we we tend to elect opposite governments. So the fact that a conservative government exists. Um, in, in Doug Ford in, in Ontario doesn't necessarily suggest that Ontarians are going to vote en masse blue federally uh, as well. I, I don't have the math, you know, to back me up, but, but just anecdotally, that history suggests that Ontarians uh, like that balance. And I don't know if it's the same case in, in, in many of the other provinces, but I, I suspect that it is. Let me come back to the Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott issue. That's going to come back to bite Mr. Trudeau, it has to, and the Liberals when voters are reminded that the Liberals shut down the chance for Canadians to hear more 
from Jody Wilson-Raybould with their 5-4 to four votes of the Justice Committee in Parliament. There's going to be that reminder, and particularly if Jody Wilson-Raybould ends up running for the Green Party, then all bets are off as far as what Canadians will hear, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I, I suspect that the, the Tories have a, have a couple of tricks up their sleeves, things that they know that they're just biding their time. There's really no advantage for them to, 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 to bring this out uh, here in April with six months to go. But uh, in September or during a debate or at some other opportune moment, I think we're going to hear more to the story. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we asked Canadians, you know, are, are you are you satisfied? Or are you done? Are you ready to move on? Or do you think there is more uh, to learn from this story and, and, you, and you continue to want to hear about it? And the majority of Canadians said, give me more. I think there's yeah, more, to be, yeah. more to be told. I tweeted on that the other day, and I tweeted on the fact that we have those five to four votes that the Liberals consistently uh, defeated the opposition parties with in the Parliamentary Justice Committee. So we didn't hear more from Jody Wilson-Raybould. And I asked on the tweet whether Canadians want to hear more from Jody Wilson-Raybould. And that, was, that tweet was just repeated and repeated and repeated. Mm. Let me just move to Jason Kenney. He's now going to be sworn in as Premier of Alberta on Tuesday. Mr. Kenny's made some very strong statements. He's made some very determined statements. I'm interested in, in what you think and what you consider the impact of Jason Kenny, what it might be, heading toward October the 21st. Here's a man with a tremendous amount of federal experience. Mm. And, uh, and there's a lot of interest in what he's doing. So he's going to have a very strong platform from which to speak. What's, what's the Kenny factor? Well, um, because he's perhaps even more well-known in Canada than uh, Andrew Scheer, he, he might act as a, a, a bit of a proxy or, or a conservative spokesperson. Now, I mean, the, the, the Tories are, are going to clean up in Alberta anyway, um, federally, um, regardless right. of whether or not Kenny won. I mean, the, 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 the you know liberals just don't have a chance to retain their, their seats in Alberta. Um, but I think he'll be he'll be vocal uh, during the campaign. Um, but you know, given that that he's going to be vocal against the feds, but also probably against British Columbians. British Columbians probably aren't going to like that and may be more likely to vote liberal as a result. So, you know, there's there's a little bit of, of, of um, give and take. They'll, they'll, they'll get a little because Kenny speaks well and he's well known, but then he'll end up alienating some people in B.C. and maybe in Ontario and, and, and Quebec as a result. It all might just be a wash in the end. So you mentioned Ontario and Quebec. How do they mm. how do they factor in your poll? What are, how, how are Ontario and Quebec, uh, Ontario and British Columbia voters looking at the situation? Mm. Well, uh, Ontario is, is is definitely the key the key battleground. Uh, I know people from outside of the province probably hate to hear that over and over again, but it, it's the truth. Uh, it has the most seats and it's the most competitive. At the moment, we're showing 34% for the Conservatives, 34% for the Liberals, a dead tie. And actually, the NDP aren't, aren't doing too badly there at, uh, at 25%. So it's a real dogfight in Ontario. British Columbia, on the other hand, is quite a solid lead at the moment for the Liberals, almost a 20-point lead, 19-point lead uh, over the Tories uh, who are tied with, with the NDP. In Quebec, uh, another key riding because, uh, sorry, province because, of course, it's the second most populous. Um, the Liberals are still in the lead. They had double-digit leads uh, all throughout the SNC-Lavalin affair, uh, and now their lead uh, over the Conservatives is only seven points. Uh, so uh, Quebec is actually going to be quite quite competitive, and and I think the Liberal 
um, uh, strategy or hope is that any losses that they sustain in places like maybe BC, definitely Alberta, definitely Ontario, they can regain in Quebec. But there's there's no guarantee that those NDP seats in Quebec, which which the NDP are no doubt lose most of them. There's no guarantee those are going to go uh, to the Liberals. Uh, some of them in more rural areas will go to the Conservatives, and and the Bloc is is starting to gain momentum at 20 percent in the province. They'll definitely pick up a couple. What about the People's well. Party and uh, and and where they rank? Yeah, we're not we're not seeing uh, an abundant uh, level of, of, of support for uh, for the People's Party. You know, Bernier will probably pull one or two percent nationally. Uh, he may win his seat, uh, but uh, you know, I'm not holding my breath that uh, that they gain any traction okay. beyond that. Sean, lots of balls in the air. We're six months away, but it's fascinating, and it'll become only more so. Thanks so much for everything you do at Ipsos. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I'm sure we'll be talking again. I'm sure we will many times. Thank you, Sean. Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos. Some people don't put their money where their mouth is. But Roy Green's just hit the ATM and he's got a stack of reds and browns. This is the Roy Green Show. is warming at nearly twice the global rate and even faster in our north. But the opposition denies that climate change is real and look no further than Ontario to find a provincial government that's wasting taxpayers' money fighting climate action in court while ignoring their commitments to protect species at risk. Bill number one in that legislature session will be the Carbon Tax Repeal Act. Bill number two will be the Open for Business Act. We will also pass the first installment of the job creation tax cut in that first session of the legislature. Oh yeah, it'll be interesting. It will be interesting. Mr. Trudeau versus Mr. Kenny and uh, the rest of the firewall that's gone up across Canada. And rememberers have been saying to you, Newfoundland and Labrador have an election coming up in a matter of weeks. And Atlantic Canada, which went solidly red in 2015, is now shifting to blue. It will be interesting. And uh, Ontario is not fighting climate change in court. It's fighting the carbon tax. My good friend uh, Mike Smith at Mike Smith News, columnist for the Vancouver province, one of the preeminent columnists in this country and uh, broadcast host at CKNW Radio, tweets... Uh, it's hilarious to go back and listen to John Horgan railing against the carbon tax in opposition. He wanted it frozen at 2.5% or 2.5 cents per liter. Now that he's premier, he just jacked it up to 8.89 cents a liter. Hashtag BC Poly, hashtag gas prices. Mike Smith joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mike, it's never what I said. It's never what I do. It's only what we remember them saying. And you got him. Uh, you know what, Roy, if, if we could take brazen hypocrisy of politicians and somehow use that to soak up 
carbon dioxide you could <laughs> you could save the planet from climate change tomorrow you know unfortunately all the the political hot out out there hot air out there in metro vancouver um seems to be about these uh gas prices which are the highest we've ever seen in north america a liter of gas in metro vancouver now is over a buck 70 a liter quite often a lot higher in some places so it's not only going to become an issue across Canada in the federal election, but it's a red-hot issue here in British Columbia and especially in Metro Vancouver as well, with gas prices being so high. And the tweet that you just referenced, and I encourage people to check it out, if you go back to when John Horgan, now the Premier of B.C., when he was in opposition, and the previous Liberal government brought in a B.C. carbon tax he was totally against it, and there's lots of video and audio of him just railing against the carbon tax in opposition, talking about how difficult it'll be for working people trying to make ends meet. He wanted to have that carbon tax frozen in B.C., as you mentioned, at two and a half cents a liter in B.C. It's now at almost nine cents a liter. He just increased it a couple of few weeks ago. So, yeah, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on back and forth. And it's not just the NDP and Horgan, it's the opposition liberals here, too, because they were the guys who brought in the carbon tax in the first place, and now they're pressuring Horgan to put a cap on it and reduce gas taxes. So there's a lot of hypocrisy going back and forth. It's whatever's convenient, right? Whatever argument's most convenient to me is the one I'll make. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, you know... You say black is white and white is black, depending yep. on which side of the fence you're on. If you're in, if you're in government or if you're in opposition, so it, it's kind of like a bit, of, a bit like Groundhog Day. You, know, you get the kind of the uh, repeating scenarios, but sometimes the parties just switch places. And we are not scheduled to have an election in British Columbia for a few more years. But don't forget, we're in a minority government situation here, and the NDP has got a very slim hold on power, just two seats, and with their alliance with the Green Party, and who knows, you could be into a provincial election uh, uh, sooner than people think. And I think a carbon tax and gas prices are certainly going to be a huge federal issue, and I think they're going to continue to be a big uh, provincial issue in here in British Columbia politically going forward, too. Well, Mike, I know you have a column on the uh, gas prices, uh, and uh, it's it's going to be on the online version of the province uh, today and uh, and then in the newspaper tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, talk to us, please, about what what a people in British Columbia, what effect on the daily lives of British Columbians is this gasoline price having? Because I would say to the rest of Canada, stand by. Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at how much the price of gas has gone up here, it's over $1.70 a liter in Metro Vancouver. A lot of that is provincial taxes, uh, some of it earmarked for public transit, others for provincial revenue. Of course, we've got the carbon tax here in BC, so we've got the highest gas taxes in Canada. We got the highest gas prices in North America. And for a lot of people who don't have any choice but to drive their car or if they're in a business that relies on transportation by trucks or whatever, obviously it's a major cost input and it's a, it's a big pressure. And you see a lot of people in British Columbia now uh, going across the border south to Washington State to fill up on cheap gas there to beat the tax man here in British Columbia. So there's a lot of pressure right now on John Horgan and the NDP government here to do something about it. The B.C. Liberals want the government to cut gas taxes. 
Horgan, you can tell he's uncomfortable every time he's asked about this. This is a guy who campaigned on the theme of affordability. He wanted to be premier so he could make life more affordable for people. And he did things like getting getting rid of some bridge tolls in the lower mainland, for example. But, you know, gas prices are really hitting people in the wallet here right now. I think it's a very top-of-mind issue for a lot of folks. The, the polls seem to back that up. Horgan's under some pressure here to cut those provincial gas taxes. He's, he looks uncomfortable when you ask him about it, and he's been flip-flopping a bit on it, saying he, he, maybe he'll ask his deputy minister to look at what the provincial government can do, and then a few days later he said he didn't want to cut gas taxes. So the Liberals are all over it. They've got uh, billboards up around Metro Vancouver now with Horgan's picture on it saying if, if, you're, if you're sick of paying high gas prices, blame this guy. So it's a red-hot political issue here in B.C., and it's really hitting people in the wallet. Isn't Horgan also complaining about oil companies gouging consumers? And, yeah. uh, and and calling isn't he also calling for more refining capacity in British Columbia? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Horgan has been saying is, look, I, I get it. I understand people are uh, don't like paying these high gas prices in Vancouver, but don't blame me. Yeah, I just put up the carbon tax, but it only went up a penny last uh, earlier this month. The price at the pump has gone up a lot more than that. Now, why is that? He's saying, don't blame me. Blame these big oil companies. Uh, they're the ones who are gouging you. That's the reason you're getting hosed. It's not because of me. It's because of these greedy oil companies. Now, when you ask him to back that up with some evidence of collusion or price fixing or whatever, he, he struggles to come up with any evidence. But what he does say is what we one of the problems in British Columbia is a, a lack of refining capacity. There's only one refinery in Metro Vancouver. He says, look, what we need is, an, is another gas refinery here. Well, you know, that's kind of hilarious, too, because at the same time he's suggesting that maybe we should have another gas refinery here, he's also been fighting the Trans Mountain Pipeline from Alberta. That's right. So where are we supposed to get the oil, the fuel, the fuel stock that would go into this refinery uh, to, to get cheaper gas here when he's fighting the pipelines and Mike, that would bring the raw material here. Mike, where in Canada can you get license, Can you get a refinery license and passed, uh, environmentally passed? Where could that possibly happen? Well, you think about what a refinery would, would entail. I mean, you know, you're talking about a, a footprint about the size of Stanley Park in Vancouver with a, with a big, smelly, uh, carbon-emitting uh, gas plant um, that no one... In uh, the in, in the Vancouver area is gonna is gonna want. I mean, you would have you would have flaming torches and pitchforks on the front on the front lawn of the BC Legislature if they tried to build that anywhere in in, in Vancouver. And then if you tried to build it in the north coast of British Columbia, well, they just canceled the pipeline going up to the north coast as well. So how is this supposed to be done? A, a, a refinery costs billions, multiple billions of dollars. They, they take many, many years to build and many more decades to pay off the money that you would have to borrow in order to build it. And the other thing that's quite ironic and hypocritical is at the same time that Horgan's saying, like, oh, we need more gas refineries here, his government has passed a law to basically make the internal combustion engine automobile illegal in uh, in British Columbia within the next 20 years. So they want to outlaw uh, gas-consuming cars and force people to buy electric cars. <laughs> so but, but, who, but who let's build a right refinery. Mind, who in the right mind is going to build a refinery <laughs> when this guy's trying to make uh, gas-consuming cars illegal within the next couple and of years? And let me just say this. When it comes to this issue of, of, of cars, about you know the carbon... Uh, uh, the, the internal combustion engine, they have become so, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, they have become so much more efficient and so much more environmentally friendly that it's, 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 it's really short-sighted targeting when you, when you do what exactly what you're telling us Premier Horgan is saying and the 
next 20 years, they want them all gone out of British Columbia. Cars really aren't the problem uh, they were 30 years ago, 40 years ago, even 20 years ago. They're not. Well, that's true. I mean, the, the fleet of vehicles in British Columbia has become a lot more efficient. And one of the reasons for that is arguably because the carbon tax has been effective as it's gone up gradually over the last few years. Um, We see record high transit use in Vancouver just reported this week as well. So you could make an argument that the the carbon tax so far has has been effective, but one of the things that that Horgan argued in opposition was, well, look, you know, once we've had some success here, how about we slow this down and give people a break? We've had such a, a drastic hike in the price at the pump that people can't uh, can't react and respond to it very quickly. Let's give people a break and cut those gas taxes and uh, basically, you know, do a little profit taking on on the on the progress that we've made so far, but give people a break because these gas taxes are brutal. So far, he seems very hesitant to go there, but he's going to be under a lot more pressure here going forward to do exactly that, Roy, especially if gas taxes, gas prices go even higher. No, no, no doubt. And car manufacturers have become so much better at making their vehicles and their engines and yep. their and, the, and their uh, the, their uh, exhaust systems. Uh, so much more efficient. They're not really. They're not the target. They shouldn't be the the, the level of target that they that they are. Let me go back to your uh, to the column that you wrote on the 18th of April, and I was reading this at the time that I was recuperating from my date with the surgeon, and I wonder whether he actually used a sharp knife or a Louisville slugger. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's BC Premier Horgan versus everybody else as other provinces turn right. What are you saying in this one? Well, if you take a look at where other provinces have gone, I mean, in Alberta, of course, you got Jason Kenney has just defeated Rachel Notley, so you got a conservative government in Alberta. You got Doug Ford in Ontario, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, Brian Pallister in Manitoba. Uh, even the Quebec government, I guess, is kind of a center-right uh, government. Of course, in PEI uh, just elected um, the uh, conservatives there. But now, of course, uh, Dennis King, the conservative leader there in PEI, has only got a minority and could easily be displaced if if the Greens and Liberals decide to gang up on him here and, and topple him, just like what happened here and effect- effectively what happened here in British Columbia, and that might happen. But essentially, uh, John Horgan is the last... NDP premier left standing here in BC, so he he's kind of a bit of a wallflower at the premier's ball here now. And and if he tries to, or or as Brad Wall likes to say, the skunk at the garden party. Yes, that too, or a rattlesnake at a barn dance. I've heard that one too. Um, so the if Horgan tries to present a united front with some of his other fellow premiers in in lining up against, let's say, some federal policy, for example, it could be tough if. Uh, if most of the other premiers are on the uh, the opposite side of the uh, ideological fence. The other more immediate jeopardy for British Columbia and the NDP government here, though, is a looming showdown here with Kenny next door in Alberta, because Kenny is hopping mad at the B.C. government and their opposition to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and he has threatened to turn off the taps and cut oil and gas shipments to British Columbia, make us freeze in the dark, and maybe even jack up our gas prices even higher. I mean, if people think that a buck seventy or a buck seventy-two a liter in Metro Vancouver is a lot to pay for a liter of gas, 
you ain't seen nothing yet if Kenny follows through on this threat to turn off the taps and maybe the price of gas goes up even higher. Now, the B.C. government has said that's illegal. You can't do that in Canada. You can't selectively punish another province like this on, on natural gas shipments, and they would fight it in court, and maybe they would win. But if, even if they don't, I think that Kenny and... Uh, BC Premier John Horgan appear to be on a collision course here, just like Kenny's on a collision course with Trudeau here. So we're in, we're in for some uh, some tough sledding here. For sure. Now there is. I've been calling it a firewall, a conservative firewall that's springing up across Canada. And when yeah. you look when you look at the polling that Ipsos did, and we talked with uh, with the Vice President of Ipsos earlier in the program, and they still have the Conservatives up by four points over the Liberals, and they're about mm-hmm. uh, they're about thirteen points ahead of the NDP. Um, but this is not a good thing for Justin Trudeau to be uh, encountering. Not a good thing for John Horgan either. If you have the once momentum starts, it's it's hard to stop it, and and we see this this conservative momentum building across Canada, and that is something Mr. Horgan has to be aware of. And I was interested in what you said, and we only have about forty five seconds here. There's no guarantee that John Horgan's not going to be facing the, the British Columbia voters in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I mean, in a minority government situation, they could, they could typically be into an election sooner than people think. As for the federal election coming this fall, I think you're right. I think Andrew Scheer and the federal conservatives certainly look to be in a good spot here, uh, certainly in the polls and with some of the troubles that Trudeau has had. But I'll tell you, Roy, I've been to some rallies where Trudeau has been a featured uh, a headliner here in British Columbia, and people still go gaga over this guy sometimes. He's still got a bit of the royal jelly. He's a good campaigner, and I would not rule Justin Trudeau out at all in, in possibly winning again in the fall. Of course, he's facing uh, at some point, in some way, he's going to have to face Jody Wilson-Raybould again. Yeah, we'll see it. We'll see if she runs for the federal Green Party. Right. He went to Elizabeth May's wedding. You never know. Yeah, always great talking to you, Mike. Thank you Thanks so very you much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Mike Smith at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Fran Coombs is the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, the huge polling firm in the United States. And Fran's been great uh, to us with his time as we were, particularly as we were leading up to 2016, Fran, and the November <laughs> election, which saw Mr. Trump defeat Hillary Clinton. And now we could uh, be calling you on you again to join us every weekend in 2020. How, how, how do you assess Mr. Biden's entry into the, uh, into the run, into the race? Well, Roy, as you know, I mean, he's got the name recognition, so he naturally goes into the race as the leader, just as Hillary Clinton did back in 2008, and then she was taken out by Barack Obama. Uh, I truly do not believe that Joe Biden will be the Democrats' 2020 nominee, uh, but he is certainly the front runner now because he's the guy that everybody's heard of. So what takes him out of the picture eventually, and how quickly do you think he'll be gone? Well, it may take the, it'll probably take to the primaries, but I think, by, by, let's face it, Biden's too old. Uh, and the Democrats have a big problem because they've got Bernie Sanders, they've got Elizabeth Warren, they've got Joe Biden. All these folks are septuagenarians. I mean, they're up there, you know, 70 or more. And uh, the Democratic Party is increasingly a party which has got a lot of interest groups and a lot of younger voters. Uh, and the folks in those interest groups, whether it's people of color or women or, you know, whether you want to say the Hispanics or the blacks or whatever, there are a lot of ambitious, shall we say, younger politicians, many of whom are in this race already, 
who want the nod. And I just think when the smoke clears, the Democrats are not going to they're not going to fall back on another old white person like they did with Hillary Clinton. You know, I was thinking the same thing as when, when Biden declared, I thought, first of all, why is he declaring? Because there's no way that the younger and more left wing arm of the Democratic Party is going to be interested in having him represent them against Donald Trump in 2020. But here he is, nevertheless. So of those who are running now, who do you think is most likely and, and to 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 survive, uh, maybe be the, the one to run against Trump? Or are we still waiting for somebody to enter the field who's not in there yet, who will ultimately prove to be the winner? For the Democrats, right. Well, I, I think among the people we've got, I think Kamala Harris has a very good chance of being either the presidential nominee or the deep. Uh, although she does have a tendency to put her foot in a, foot in her mouth, but again, more time out on a, on a national stage, we'll see how she develops. Uh, obviously, this South Bend mayor, uh, the gay mayor Buttigieg, is he's the flavor of the week as far as the media is concerned. While uh, Robert Francis O'Rourke seems to be flaming out. Um, but I just there's just something that tells me it's kind of like the way <clears throat> excuse me the way Obama took out Hillary Clinton in 2008 and I mean we all know whether the Democrats want to acknowledge it or not Hillary Clinton was not a very effective candidate in 2016 uh, she just could not articulate a reason for why she was running for president other than me 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 uh, and I think that there's a lot of young talent in the party that is ambitious. Uh, and I just don't know that oh, Biden, yes, Biden's been around forever. Uh, but, you know, this is now what his fourth his fourth run at the presidency. And I just don't know that he has a compelling story uh, that can basically is stronger than Trump's and or a compelling story that appeals to younger voters or voters of color in the Democratic Party. Do you know what I found weird? Fran, was that there was this background music while Biden was speaking, declaring. I thought, well, where's that music coming from? And didn't know that you needed a music track. Oh, really? Now, that's interesting. I didn't notice that. Yeah, well, you know, obviously they've been throwing popular songs behind candidates for ages. I don't know. Was that a mistake or was that... Was I don't know. Like I, yeah, I mean, maybe to show he was young and hip. Maybe it was just my brain that was misfiring, but I, I heard this music playing in the background. It wasn't quite heavenly, but... Anyway, um, well, go ahead. I, I just think that I think Trump. I think Trump will wipe up the floor with Biden if Biden is the nominee, and I think the Democrats have more sense than to do that. I mean, Joe Biden's a decent guy, but he is not the sharpest pencil in the box, uh, as we've seen many times over the years. <laughs> That's true, yeah. uh, and I just don't know. I mean, I, I was listening to your clip right before I came on. Where Biden is going, you know, if we have Trump in there for eight years, it'll fundamentally change the country. Hey, that's exactly why people voted for him. Well, it, that's true, isn't it? And so let me ask yeah, you that. Let me ask you this. But here we are. It's all beginning. I mean, the run up uh, and it's just going to increase in, in momentum and and interest levels. And once the primaries are underway and the debates are underway, we'll all be caught up in it. So uh, so, so so given all of that. And the fact that Donald Trump has been through all of that and destroyed all the GOP uh, candidates running against him in 2016, looking at his record, looking at at everything that's happened in the last uh, two-plus years, um, what are the the chances—and we're way out, we're, we're far out here. Uh, Fran, but it, would you say that Donald Trump is the would be the favorite at this point to repeat as president of the United States in 2020? Well, I think if you look at historical standards, he would be. I mean, with, with any president with this kind of a economic turnaround, 
wouldn't historically be a shoe-in for a second term. Uh, but given how divided the country is and given the level of misinformation that's out there, primarily because of social media, I'm not sure that a lot of voters in this country are even aware of all that Trump has accomplished. I mean, if you look at what he's really done, the guy's got a pretty remarkable record for two years in office. But do people really know that because there's just so much duplicity and, you know, fake news and what have you uh, kind of muddying the waters all the time? Yeah. Uh, what about the Mueller report? What happens with, with that now? What happens with the Democrats uh, who are feverishly uh, pursuing, some of them, the option of, of impeaching Donald Trump, others, uh, even Nancy Pelosi saying, uh, you know, back off this, uh, this, this pursuit. What's going to happen with the, with the Mueller report and the Democrats pursuing Trump? Well, I mean, impeachment is a dead issue. The Democrats know that. Uh, you know, the smart Democrats know that. I mean, some of the loudmouths may not know it. Uh, but as you and I have discussed many times before, look, Democratic voters don't tend to turn out like Republican voters do. And so the one thing the party always has to do is they always have to keep things out of frenzy. They have to keep things emotional. And that's why Democrats are always screaming racism and sexism and every kind of ism you can think of, because they need to keep their voters pumped up, outraged, angry, uh, so they'll vote. And um, so, I'm, you know, I don't, it's no surprise to anyone that they're going to reach into the Mueller report and find anything they can and just, you know, put their spin on whatever it is. Um, but the story I'm really waiting to see is whether the Republicans have the courage uh, to push on the, the Clinton collusion story and the spying that was going on by the FBI. I think some of that stuff is literally unprecedented in American history and is really scary stuff, the things that the FBI and the intel agencies were doing under Obama. So what's the likelihood of that uh, really moving forward, of there being the kind of uh, determination among the Republicans to push hard for the for revelations on those fronts? Well, I think, you know, there's, I, mean, I just noticed again today that Cornyn, two, some, two big senators, Cornyn and Grassley, are both saying, hey, let's get the show on the road. There's new evidence here. There's all kinds of new evidence coming out uh, that the Republicans turned up in their investigations last year in the House of these uh, emails between people and uh, – and, of course, now that the collusion story has been completely blown out of the water, uh, a lot of people are asking why this investigation happened at all. And, as you know, the, the Steele dossier, a lot of it's it's complicated, so people can't necessarily follow it. It's murky. But if you really look at it, there's some really dirty stuff going on there. So, Fran, let me bring it full circle uh, with one final question for you. Why did Joe Biden enter the race? Why would Joe Biden, and he has advisors, I'm sure he had lots of conversations, focus groups, all sorts of people working on uh, whether or not he should enter the race. Why do you think he did it? Because he had people, I think it's kind of like 2000 in, uh, 2008. The Democrats think they've got a good chance, no matter who they nominate, they have a good chance of winning because of the uh, of Trump's the unpopularity, of unpopularity they think he has. Uh, so they think any Democrat can win, and Biden is surrounded by people going, go, Joe, go, Joe, you're the greatest. Joe, you're the greatest. You're the man. You know, run, Joe. You're the guy that can do it. And he finally fell for it. Well, we'll, uh, we'll watch with hubris. With- Uh, Yeah, hubris, good word. Fran, thank you so much. We'll watch this very carefully and be talking to you again. Thank you for your time. Uh, Okay, always enjoy it, Roy. Take care. Thanks, Fran Coombs. After last week's horrendous bombing of Christian churches and hotels in Sri Lanka, 
with more than 250 dead, and with ISIS claiming responsibility, along with the fact that at least some of the terrorists came from affluent families and had good educations, what is the message that we're receiving? And is what happened in Sri Lanka a stark warning to Western nations to not repatriate their citizens who abandoned their homelands to join and terrorize for ISIS? Uh, you know that there have been and continue to be calls from people who left this country to join ISIS to be repatriated, and who knows what's going to happen. The prime minister has said that he thinks some ISIS returnees could contribute greatly to Canada as far as de-radicalization is concerned. Well, whatever. I know that my next guest, Dr. Judy, Dr. Judy Jasser, the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam, past president of the Arizona Medical Association and former lieutenant commander in the United States Navy, Dr. Zudi Jasser would not agree with that assessment by Mr. Trudeau. Zudi, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's always great to be with you, Roy. Thanks for having me back. Let's go to the uh, to, to, to the to the news, and it's been more than less confirmed. ISIS behind the massive bombing attack in Sri Lanka. What do we make of that? Well, this was Sri Lanka's 9/11. Uh, the their civil war, uh, which was not an Islamist war, but was uh, uh, factions of the Tamils versus the Buddhists, had ended 10 years ago, and they thought they were sort of saved from the global jihad. And I think we realize that as the, as the Islamists of ISIS, al-Qaeda, and others will always reshape and reform themselves as a hydra, uh, the global jihad continues, and it's stronger than it's ever been. Uh, there's been some rebranding. ISIS shifted itself from Syria and Iraq, where it's now been decimated, to uh, we saw a bombing in Kabul a month ago. We saw an attack attempt in Saudi Arabia. Uh, in Congo, they've formed themselves. And now this horrific attack against the Christian minority in Sri Lanka they will use every opportunity to send messages, as this did on Easter Sunday, and uh, uh, find countries in which they're able to do things uh, because of opportunity and vulnerability. Uh, so, you know, they divide the world into the land of Islam and the land of war. And uh, while they've no longer been able to succeed in Syria and Iraq, where it was the land of Islam, now they're continuing to push out again in the areas of war and, and areas where Muslims are a minority, like Sri Lanka or in the West. Uh, they will continue to attack us until we have an offense. And, Roy, we don't have an offense. There is no offense for the promotion of liberty and ideas of freedom. And, and like you said, yet we're, we're, being, we're, we're being weak when it comes to those who, who declare war against us. We actually invite them back in to supposedly help us when, in fact, we're losing the ideological war miserably. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that we know, and uh, there's been some great uh, reporting done by Stuart Bell on Global News in Canada. He's one of the best investigative reporters, particularly when it comes to these issues. Uh, and he's talked to uh, to uh, unrepentant uh, members of ISIS who are being held uh, captive by the Kurds. But there are there are former ISIS members who left this country, left the United States, left Australia, left France, left the, left the UK, left Germany, and they are now being uh, held captive by the Kurds, in, and the Kurds don't want to keep them anymore, and they want the Western countries to take them back. What's the threat level? Because these people are saying, we want to come back. We understand the errors of our ways. We didn't know what we were getting into. Please let us come home. What do you say? I say not only absurd, but uh, they they should be brought back for war crimes and, and on death row for treason. Uh, there's no discussion about them coming back to help de-radicalization. That is absurd. They're, they're educated Islamists who... who 
have a worldview that's against what we stand for in secular liberal democracies, and it is an affront to Muslims and, and Canadians alike uh, that love their country to say that these war criminals should be brought back. Should be brought back. And, and to call them simply brides is absurd. Uh, these are war criminals that helped assist in the slavery of other women and the in, in war crimes against uh, minorities, Yazidis and others. There's videos now coming out that some of them didn't just sit by and and they're not victims. They they signed on ideological to the war against uh, Christians and minorities in the West, and uh, they should not even it shouldn't even be considered to bring them back. And it is beyond idiocy to think they can help us in counter radicalization when in fact the worldview of Islamists. Uh, sees their establishment of governments as theocracies while they see us as living in the land of hedonism and, and uh, sin. So uh, why then, and I've gotten tired, by the way, Zudi, and I, and I know you know that, and we've talked about this, but I've gotten tired, you've gotten tired, others have gotten tired of the, of the, of the verbal drivel that comes out of the mouths of our supposed leaders when there is an attack of, uh, of proportion and people are harmed, uh, people are killed. They talk about unity and the fight against uh, terrorists, and they, it's, it's the usual verbal pablum that means exactly nothing. Why is this continuing? Is it just a lack of will? What, what's going on? Because many of the platforms are just run by folks that really don't love the West, that really hate Christianity, so they call them Easter worshipers, as President Obama and Hillary Clinton described Christians that were massacred, and yet after New Zealand's attack, uh, they they reflected on the need to unite with Muslims and protect their faith worship. So this upside-down world where they treat us Muslims in a, in a bigotry of low expectations, and then the majority gets mistreated, is offensive, and actually empowers the radicals to say, oh, the West is weak, we have vulnerability, and by the way, the, the cell that committed the act in Sri Lanka, it should not go past anybody that they were photoed and working with uh, Sheikh Kardawi, who is one of the lead guides of the Global Muslim Brotherhood. This is not just some small cell. It was radicalized by global Islamists from Qatar, from the Brotherhood and on. And, and to say that they don't see us as weak in the way we approach our own religious freedoms of Christians and Jews and others is, is to say that you really don't understand the pathway of radicalization. Before we talk, Zudi, about the um, the revelation or the information that the some of the terrorists who were involved in that mass murder in Sri Lanka were well-educated individuals, I want to go back to something that you said, and, and it troubled me. I've, I've been off for three weeks because I had surgery and I was just going to sit in the studio for three hours, but... It troubled me when I when I when I heard or read. I guess I read it first, and then I heard it. Pres, former President Obama and former Secretary of State and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, as you pointed out, talked about the people who were attacked, terrorized, killed as Easter worshippers. What is that? Why do they do that? And you know it's coordinated, Roy, because. Whoever called them Easter worshippers, it was, it was contrived. And the reason they contrive it is they idiotically believe if they call them Christians, they're feeding into this global clash of religions. When in fact, that is the ideology of the Islamists. They feel they're at war with all non-Muslims and moderate Muslims and Christians and Jews and others. So we need to call it what it is, empower Muslims to, to be a part of liberty societies, free societies, and if we don't call it what it is, it actually comes across as profound weakness. I can tell you, as 
as the son of Arab immigrants from Syria. The, the Arab mindset, the, the Islamist mindset, feeds off of a sense of weakness. And if they see their enemy not able to identify them as what they are, they see that as an opening, not as... And that's why the left will continue to lose this battle. That's why they're part of the radicalization process and what I call the red-green axis. Uh, and yet they do it. Uh, at best, answers out of naivete. At worst, is because they, they can't stand the faith of Christianity in the West, and they actually uh, uh, prefer other cultures for some reason. Now, let's talk about our—I'd like, like your thoughts on the fact that we've, we've ever been told that some of these terrorists, some of these homicide bombers— were actually well-educated young people from fairly affluent families. What does that speak to? Well, I think every time we do this, it's like Groundhog Day movie where we re-educate people that these people are all educated. They're very educated. Osama bin Laden on Al Jazeera a couple years after 9-11 said that basically Islam is not about prayer and worship and fasting. It's about encompassing all areas of life, including education, religious and worldly affairs, economic, military, and political affairs. So here you have an educated uh, billionaire that, that was uh, radicalizing and created al-Qaeda, and, and yet we're still trying to wonder that these somehow are just aggrieved, poor people that need jobs. And that's not true. It's, it's a worldview that is fascistic, theopolitical, that uh, uh, these guys were getting taught by imams and clerics about a version of Islam that wants to dominate and destroy. And just like most successful mass movements, as the left has learned in its own history, the ones that are successful are the ones that want to die for their movement. So this is why in our American Islamic Forum, we want to work with kids that want to die for America, that want to join our military and believe in protecting this society. Because it's not about education, it's about wanting to die for jihad. And unless we want to have Muslims that are against jihad, we're going to continue to see a quarter of the world's population being the constituency for radical Islamism. And, and the most educated will be the ones that will be the first to strap on belts and decide to be part of the radical movement because they want, to them, this life is short. It's about going to, I believe, hell, but they ultimately believe it's about going to heaven and being part of the jihad. Do you see uh, any any um, determination from Western nations, from Western alliances, to do what you're telling us is necessary to be done? I don't. I mean, even even on the conservative right, we see folks that are militarily strong. Finally, Trump allowed us to defeat ISIS, and militarily, our whack-a-mole program is now more potent than ever. We're doing the right thing against Iran, but ideologically, I don't see us looking at the, you know, the U.S. Information Agency is still abandoned. Uh, public diplomacy programs are abandoned. We're not uh, uh, unashamedly doing what the uh, uh, Russians and Khomeinis and others are doing, and advancing their ideas and the Islamist ideas into the West, that we don't have the same programs going into the Muslim consciousness. So until we take an offense, we're going to continue to play defense against uh, whatever crops up this week and next week uh, from radical Islamists, because the deeper problem, Roy, is the Irans and, and even our allies, the Saudis of the world, working sometimes with China, working with our enemies, and uh, not caring about sort of the byproducts of terror that comes out of that. Now, when you said words to this effect, not those words, but when you when you made this argument before the Canadian Parliament, when you were invited to address the hearings on M103, you were described as, what was the word? Um, An Islamophobe. That's right. You, um, the son of, uh, of uh, Syrian refugees in the United States, you were attacked 
Yeah, um, and you know the the red green axis, the axis of the socialists of the world and and the Islamists, as we see in the UN, uh, uh, say anyone who's against them are bigots. And even we saw foreign policy magazine describe the king of Saudi Arabia as an Islamophobe, which is the biggest joke. And uh, the reason they did that is the Islamists now are at war internally, internally with the with the monarchs and and the uh, ruling class, the corporate Islamists, if you will. And now it's starting to reveal for everyone that the label of Islamophobe is not about being anti-Islam. It's about being anti-Islamist okay. against sort of the viral theopolitical movement Should of we, this uh, uh, socialist type ideology. Judy, we've, uh, we've run out of time. It always happens. And I thank you so much for the time. I was good talking to you. Thank you, Ray. Dr. Zudi Jasser. American Islamic Forum for Democracy, AIFD. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.